This teaching comes to you from the team at Anchor Church Sydney. We hope you're blessed by it. For more teachings, resources or info, check out our website www.anchorchurch.com.au Taking 
and making big-time shots in big-time moments. Or maybe you are not a fan of hoops, but you're a fan of another sport. And I'm sure you can understand that idea. You know, these big-time athletes who, when the stakes are high, when the game is on the line, when it's the last 50 meters of the sprint or the freestyle, they come through in the clutch. That's what was expected of LeBron. And every time he failed, every time he came up short, there were all these expectations. Is he really the one? He can't be. He doesn't have that, that killer instinct. He's not, he's not big enough in the big time moments. And I remember as a high schooler watching ESPN and hearing these sports analysts and the Twitter world and fans all around the world just criticizing this guy, being like, he's just not living up to it. You see, there were these expectations of greatness on him, which went unmet. Now, fast forward about 20 years, and uh, he has, I believe he has met those expectations. He's the greatest player in the world. And, but the thing is, his greatness is different to the greatness that was expected of him. See, everyone thought he was going to be this certain type of player like MJ, like Jordan, but he turned out to be someone totally different. And today it's Palm Sunday, and we're looking at Jesus and the triumphant entry as he comes into Jerusalem. The week of the passion narrative as things are ramping up for him to go to the cross. And what we'll see is all of these expectations of the people. Expectations of this crowd, this joyous, jubilant, celebratory crowd, and all of the expectations that they have for Jesus. And what we'll see is this contrast between their expectations and Jesus' own agenda. Their expectations and Jesus' own knowledge of what he has come to do, of the type of king that he is going to be. So let's dive in there. If you've got a Bible, open up to John chapter 12. I'll do the same. John chapter 12, starting in verse 12. And if you don't have a Bible, the, uh, the words will be up on the screen behind me, and you can follow along. So John writes, the next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. So they took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. What a welcome. I mean, let's set the scene here. I think we've got a couple of photos and uh, the first one I want to show you is uh, just a little picture of, so this is kind of a representation of the Mount of Olives or the grain in the front, and you can see the city of Jerusalem behind. And so this time were actually a Jewish symbol. By this time, they were known as a Jewish national symbol. And a symbol not of anything, but actually of victory. You see, palm branches, they date all the way back to 164 BC, where this Jewish priestly family called the Maccabees led a rebellion, a revolt against a ruling empire called the Seleucid Empire, who were ruling over them at the time. And so this family called the Maccabees, they lead this uprising, they rebel, and they reclaim Jerusalem for the Jewish people. And they reclaim the temple of God. And as they are rededicating the temple to God, to Yahweh, they're holding palm branches. They're waving palm branches in celebration as they celebrate this victory that God has delivered us. We've recaptured the city. 
We're giving the temple back to him. And so these palm branches are deeply symbolic of victory for the Jewish people. But not only that, but they are crying out, Hosanna, a phrase which means, save us. And you'll notice that they call Jesus, they describe him in two ways. Firstly, as they quote Psalm 118 in verse 13, they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus is one who has come in the name of the Lord. But not only that, they go further than that and they say, blessed is the King of Israel. So as you can see, this is no ordinary welcome. No, this is the kind of welcome for a victorious king. And you can see through these symbols, through these words, the kind of expectations that the Jewish people had for Jesus as they see him arriving. You know, even the phrase, come out to meet him, which John uses in verse 13, they took palm branches and they went out to meet him was a phrase at that time which would often be used in writings about kings returning from battle. As they rode back into the city on their horses, the crowds would go out to meet them. And so what we see is that the Jewish crowds, they welcomed Jesus as king with nationalistic ideas of his victory and of his reign. They're looking at him as he comes into the city And like, here comes our king, here comes our victor. This is the one who's going to deliver us from foreign control. No longer will we be a minority in the Roman Empire. No, we we will be free at last. This is the one who comes to usher us into a new era, a time of peace and prosperity and freedom. He is the one that we've been waiting for. You know, it kind of reminds me of uh, Lord of the Rings. I don't know if anyone's been watching Lord of the Rings since it became available on Netflix, but um, it reminds me of Aragorn. You know, this, this, this prophesied king, Aragorn, the son of Arathorn, I'm not going to nerd out too much on you, who was prophesied to come, right, and fulfill all of this legacy. Mitch is laughing. <laughs> the one who was prophesied to come, the heir, the heir of Isildur, to unite and lead the race of men and to push back the darkness and the dark forces of Sauron and Mordor and bring peace and prosperity and freedom and fruitfulness into Middle-earth once again. Aragorn, come on. I mean, this is kind of like the expectations. Those expectations that were on him are kind of like the expectations that are on Jesus. Here he is. Here is the one. But read with me in verse 14. As Jesus enters and we see the mind of Jesus and his own agenda and how that contrasts the people. So it says in verse 14, as John continues, Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, as it is written. Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. And at first, his disciples did not understand all of this. But only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. So here comes Jesus, and he's riding on a young donkey, which is an interesting choice of animal because at that time a donkey was known as a symbol of humility, as a symbol of peace. 
And you, you already start to get a little inkling here, a little, a little, a little uh, insight into the contrast between the people's expectations and what Jesus came to do. Because surely if he's coming in as this ruling, mighty, militaristic king, what kind of animal would you expect him to be riding? I mean, perhaps a great stallion, you know, a great beast. I imagine like riding a lion or something, and that'd be sick. Or maybe he comes in, you know, in a war chariot with torches blazing and a sword tucked into his belt. But no, he chooses a donkey, a symbol of peace and humility. And you start to wonder, like, are the people picking up on this? Like, did they notice the creature that he's chosen to ride? But it seems like they're just too caught up in their own expectations, in their own frenzy to notice that detail. But Jesus has been very deliberate. He's chosen this donkey to fulfill Zechariah 9 verse 9. This little quote, uh, verse 15, where it says, Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. You see, Jesus has chosen this animal to fulfill this messianic text. And what that means is a messianic text is basically a passage of scripture from the Old Testament. We have these, this collection of different scripture passages which foretell of the coming of God's chosen one. The Messiah, it's a technical term. God's anointed one who will come and lead his people into salvation. And so Jesus here is fulfilling this messianic text. And it's interesting, isn't it, that even the disciples, John writes in verse 16, at first they didn't understand what was going on either. But later on, they come to understand why Jesus has done this. This is a declaration from Jesus. I am this one. I am this one. But what we start to see here is the contrast between what the crowds thought Jesus would be, who this one was to be, and Jesus' own agenda, Jesus' own knowledge of what he had come to do, of the kind of king he had come to be. You know, I wondered as I was reading this text this week, it's like, I wonder what Jesus is thinking at this point in time. You know, as he sees the people rushing out with their palm branches, as he hears the shouts of Hosanna, as he witnesses this warm, royal reception, what is Jesus thinking? Because, you know, Jesus, he knows their minds. He knows their minds. We, we hear in other parts of the Gospels that Jesus knows what people are thinking. He knows what's on their hearts. And I wonder what Jesus is thinking as he sees their expectations. And he knows that they're so different to what he has come to do. And you might be thinking, well, James, you're sounding very cryptic at the moment. Like, what, what has he come to do? Like, what has Jesus come to do? And so jump down with me to John chapter 12, verse 23. This is the same chapter of the same book, mere moments after Jesus has entered, and he's having this conversation. Verse 23, Jesus replied, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces 
many seeds. Now you might be wondering, what is Jesus talking about? He's talking about glorified. I don't really get that. And what's with the whole wheat thing? Is he just talking about wheat because he likes farming and stuff like that? No, this is a metaphor. Jesus is symbolically talking about himself. He's talking about what he has come to do, his glorification. He's talking about what he's come to do. The kernel of wheat represents him. He says it must fall to the ground and die. In the same way, Jesus knows that he has come to go to the cross and die. And just as that kernel of wheat, as it dies, produces many seeds through Jesus' death, life is made available for many people. That's what Jesus came to do. And so think about that. Think about this this contrast as Jesus rides in on the donkey and, and the people, they lay the palm branches before him. He is our king. He's come to save us, to liberate us so that we'll be free politically, nationally. We won't be under the control of foreign powers anymore. We will experience peace and prosperity and fruitfulness now, physically, materially, in the here and now. And as Jesus rides in, he's thinking, I've come to die. That's what I have come to do. That's my mission. Jesus knew full well as he rode into Jerusalem on the donkey that day that he came to give his life as a sacrifice, as a ransom for many. So that as he died, the way for eternal life and salvation would be opened up to people who would look on him and believe. See, the people aren't totally wrong. Jesus is great. But his greatness is different to the kind of greatness that they were expecting. They're right. He is a king. But he's a different type of king to what they wanted him to be. And he will establish his kingdom in a different way to what they are expecting and hoping for. You see, Jesus will achieve victory and liberation. But this victory and liberation is not political. It's spiritual. Jesus' victory will be through death, not might or conquest. And this freedom that he brings is not from foreign rule, but from sin and its consequences. See, Jesus is the king, but the kingdom he establishes, it's a new kingdom for all people, not based on ethnicity or race, but based on identification, on union with him with being united to him in his death and in his resurrection. And you know, sometimes I think for us, we're kind of like the crowds. Like you might be here today and you might call yourself a follower of Jesus. And so often in times we have contrasting expectations of what we think Jesus has come to do for us compared to what he has come to do. And what he says he has come to do as revealed in his word. And you know, if you are a follower of Jesus here today, you know, I wonder how you would answer this question. What do you think Jesus has come to do for you? And not the textbook Bible study answer, 
you know, like we're sitting around in a group and we do some comprehension. Hey, guys, what do you think Jesus has come to do for you? You know, oh, he's come to save us and die on the cross. And they're like, what do you actually think? What does the attitudes in your heart reveal about what you think, what you believe Jesus has come to do for you? What does your life reveal? How does the way that you relate with Jesus reveal your expectations of him? And I think for some of us, we welcome Jesus as our Savior, but we have all these expectations of what we expect him to do for us. You know, we think Jesus coming and being in a relationship with God and having faith in Christ means that we're going to be really blessed. That we're going to have these easy, comfortable, nice lives. It's like Instagrammable Christianity, right? Like Bible and coffee, so good. And we're going to have these nice lives with the perfect dream partner, living in the house of our dreams, in an amazing city with a beautiful family, Our kids are going to love kids' church, and we're going to have immeasurable success in everything that we hope and dream and wish for in our vocation and our business ventures and our careers is going to be blessed by God because that is what Jesus has come to do. And we kind of smirk a little bit and we laugh a little bit because we're like, nah, that's outrageous, just because none of us would actually admit that and say that out loud. But deep down in our hearts, what our attitudes reveal shows what our expectations are. You know, a really easy way to tell this is, what are the things that you get angry about God that he hasn't given you? Like, what are the things in your life which you've been praying for, hoping for, wishing for, and you're starting to get frustrated and you're starting to get angry at God because you're like, God, why aren't you doing this for me? Jesus, why aren't you blessing me with this thing or this job or this person? I've given up so much for you. I've chosen the costly road of following you and you can't even bless me in this way. Our attitudes reveal our true expectations of Jesus. Now, please hear me carefully when I say, none of those things that I listed are inherently bad, and there's nothing wrong with desiring those things. In fact, those are good desires to have, and Jesus, in his graciousness and in his kindness, as we pray to him and ask him for things, the reality is he may graciously give us many of those things. Heaps of them, out of his goodness, out of his kindness. You know, the Bible says God is a good father who delights in giving his children good gifts. And that is true. I want to affirm that 100%. Amen. Is God for you? Yes, he is. But giving us that blessed life, giving us that Sydney version of the good life is just simply not what Jesus came to do. No, Jesus came to die for us. Jesus came to save us so that we might have a way to be forgiven of our sins. Jesus came to put us into relationship with the Father. Jesus came so that we might have the Holy Spirit. Jesus came to call us fishers of men, to sweep us up into his great commission of making disciples in all of the world. Jesus came to give us purpose in building the kingdom and advancing the church and using everything that he's put in our hands, not for our own glory, not to build our own kingdom, but to build his kingdom. Jesus calls us to be part of his work until such time as he comes back and makes everything new. That's what Jesus 
came to do. And so I wonder this morning, if you're a disciple of Jesus, do you have correct expectations of him that are aligned with the things that he says in his word? Or are you more like the crowd? Am I more like the crowd? You know, a little bit short-sighted. We get that he's great. We get that he's a king, that he should be worshipped. But we don't fully understand, like, what he's come to do and how he wants us to follow him and the kind of king that he is. Or maybe you're here today and uh, you don't consider yourself a follower of Jesus. Uh, Maybe you don't even believe in him. Maybe you're just still engaging on that ideas level of like, who is Jesus? What does he come to do? Who is he? And you might, you might be wondering, what did he come to do? And there's lots of opinions out there. You know, did Jesus come to teach us how to work our way to heaven? Did, did he come to show us how we can do enough good deeds so that we get to heaven? Or did Jesus come as a spiritual guide to show us, you know, through enlightenment, how each of us finds our own version of inner peace. Is Jesus like a yogi? Or did Jesus come perhaps to overthrow all of these old, archaic, outdated religions and to bring in a new religion where everyone is accepted by God regardless of of what they believe? Maybe you've been following the uh, American news over the last year and you might be wondering, you know, are those American evangelicals right? Did Jesus come to make America great again? No. Jesus came to die for your sin. As he says, his words in Luke chapter 19, verse 10, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. This is what Jesus says about himself. And we ought to form our expectations and our beliefs based on not the opinions of others, not what's trending at the time, but what Jesus says in his word. The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. See, this is the kind of king that Jesus is. He's one who serves us by going to the cross and humbly laying down his life for people like you like you and like me, who are sinful, who are broken, who've made mistakes, who are carrying guilt and shame, Jesus came to serve us by dying for us in our place. So that no matter what you've done, no matter who you are, no matter what guilt you're carrying, no matter how you've turned away from God, you can be forgiven and have a relationship and eternal life with him today. See, this is what Jesus has come to do. And it's interesting to see uh, the reactions of the crowd. Have a look with me in verse 17 of the passage. John writes, Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. And many people because they had heard that he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. And so the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. And so what's happening here is 
His great crowds have come out to see him, right? Part of this triumphant entry. And they've heard about how he raised Lazarus from the dead. Some of them have seen it. Some of them have heard it. And so they come out to meet him in such a massive number that even the Pharisees say, look how the whole world has gone after him. And obviously we know it's not the actual whole world, but it just must have been so many people, such a great crowd, so momentous that it seemed like the world. And you know, the interesting thing, the jarring thing, the convicting thing as we look at this passage, as we come to the end of it, is that we see this same crowd who were cheering for him, who were laying palm branches at his feet, who were crying out to him, who, Hosanna, who were saying that he's blessed, who were calling him the king of Israel. You can imagine just the jubilation, the joy, the happiness, the expectation of these people. And yet these same people in less than a week will be the same people who call for him to be crucified. I mean, can you believe that? Like try and put yourself there in, in that scene. These same people who seem to welcome him with open arms and open hearts are the same ones who less than a week later will cry out, crucify him. Give us Barabbas, crucify him. The same ones who are gonna spit on him as he carries his cross up the hill. The same ones who are gonna vilify him and mock him. The exact same crowd. And it just makes it so much more powerful because you gotta be thinking, man, as Jesus rides in on this donkey and he sees these people, knowing what he's gonna have to do and knowing how they will just change on him. Like what is going through his mind? What emotions is he feeling? And I know if it was me, I know what emotions I'd be feeling like anger, rage, pure judgment. Like, don't you guys realize what you're gonna do? You don't actually love me. You don't actually understand who I am. You don't actually want me to be king. Like, they're so fickle, they're so foolish, they're so short-sighted. And yet we don't see in these words of John any hint of anger any hint of judgment, any hint of rage from Jesus. Like he's not calling them out on their hypocrisy like, like our culture would do in this time, right? Cancel them, hypocrites. No, Jesus, there's no anger there. In fact, if we know anything about Jesus from the previous weeks and the previous sermons, what we know is that he looks on sinners with love. He looks on sinners with love and compassion. And so just think that as Jesus rode in that day to these crowds and this victorious celebration, and as he sees these people who will turn on him, who will shout for his crucifixion, even still he looks at them with love. And, and he could have turned around, right? Like he could have turned around on that donkey, but no, he chooses to keep going because he knows that he needs to make a way for them. He knows that he has to go to the cross and he does that because he loves them. 
See, Jesus loves these fickle, foolish, short-sighted people so much that he just keeps going. And he will go all the way to the cross where he will give up his life so that they might have life. Because that's the kind of king that he is. And that's how he chooses to bring in his kingdom. And you know, we started by talking about unmet expectations of greatness. And I don't think these expectations of greatness were unmet by Jesus. No, I think he exceeded them. I think these expectations were misplaced because they didn't understand what he needed to do and they didn't understand that he was greater, he is greater than what they thought because he would go and do what they couldn't do for themselves to make a way for them to know God and to be right with him. That's the greatness of Jesus. So as we come into a time of worship, you would have noticed those palm leaves which have been put on your seats and weaved into little crosses. And this morning, I wanna invite us as we sing these songs, we're gonna do something a little bit different. And there's two barrels on the sides of the rooms here. And uh, those who've been an anchor for long enough would remember that pre-COVID, when it was safe to do so, we would come out to the barrels and we would take communion, we would share in the Lord's Supper. And so this morning, as we celebrate Palm Sunday, I invite you, if you, if you recognize Jesus as your King, to come out of your seat as we sing these songs, at your own timing, as you like, and take that palm leaf, and just put it, put it on the barrel or put it next to the barrel or whatever, around the barrel. And as you do that, remember what Jesus has done for you and remember the kind of king that he is. You know, as we take these palm branches, these symbols of victory, do that as you celebrate and share in the victory which Jesus has won for us. Not a political victory, not a nationalistic victory, not a military victory, no, but a victory to give us new and abundant and everlasting eternal life with the Father. And so why don't you stand and I'll pray for us. You can stand. Let me pray for us, then we're gonna worship. You can respond as you like. Father God, we thank you this morning for our King. And as he rode into Jerusalem that day, Lord, you know, the crowds, they didn't know what he had come to do. But what he did was greater, Lord, than what they expected. He made a way that they might be saved. And so God, we pray now that as we come to respond, that you might stir our hearts to joyfulness, to thankfulness, Maybe remind us, God, fill us with awe, maybe awe that we haven't experienced for a long time as we reflect and remember on what Jesus did, on his love, Lord, to go to the cross for fickle, foolish, sinful people, people just like us, God, but he went because he loves us. 
So Jesus, we worship you this morning. We thank you for who you are, for what you've done. We remember your sacrifice. We thank you for coming into Jerusalem that day, Lord. You did it not just for the people in the crowd, Lord, but you did it for us here in 2021, Lord. Worshiping in this church, you did it for us, Lord. So we praise you, we worship you, we thank you. We pray this in your name.